Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. You are tuned to the Nighttime Podcast, focused on the fringe of Canada. Hello, listeners. For those of you who follow Nighttime closely, you probably noticed some reoccurring themes and issues that seem to work their way into many of the more tragic stories I've covered. One is the many gaping holes that the mentally ill can fall into. Another is police conduct and accountability. And the last is the way Canadian law often prevents the truth from being revealed to the loved ones left in the wake of tragedy. Tonight, we're going to hear a story which blends these three elements together into something as tragic as it is concerning. In the early morning hours of July 25th, 2018, a 911 call was placed in Brome Lake, Quebec. The caller reported witnessing a man in distress, carrying a gun, and shouting to himself. When the police arrived on scene, it only took 61 seconds before one of the responding officers shot the young man holding the gun dead. This 61-second police intervention and the events that lead up to and follow it, well, that got a lot more thought and consideration. The victim's mother, Tracy Wing, has made it her mission to hold the police accountable for what she and her many supporters believe to be the knee-jerk, poorly planned, and unnecessary shooting death of her 17-year-old son, Riley Fairholm. And tonight, in this episode of Nighttime, Tracy Wing will join us to share her son's story of mental illness, the 911 call, the police shooting, and her odyssey to learn the truth about what happened that morning. Our topic is going to be the death of 17-year-old Riley Fairholm. Fifteen months after their son was shot in the head by police, Riley Fairholm's parents are still outraged. I just feel that it was a mistake, and yesterday we heard that it was, it really wasn't a mistake, you know, he, they shot him to kill him, and it's, it's a bit tough to hear. Earlier this week, Quebec's Crown Prosecutor's Office determined that the officer who shot Riley didn't break the law, and therefore will not be charged. The night he was killed, Riley called 911 and was waving a pellet gun when six police officers arrived. His parents were surprised to hear that it took only one minute from the time police arrived on the scene to the moment their son was shot once from a distance of about 100 feet. They wish officers had taken more time to try to talk him down. The decision was a poor decision by one officer. I would expect if there was that much of an emergency to fire, there would have been more than one bullet fired. If he was able to get such a good shot at 105 feet away, I would hope that he would have shot the gun out of his hand or shoot somewhere else. To start, like just for people who will be watching this that don't know your story or Riley's story, could you maybe just start by getting a bit of an introduction, like who you are and you know what your background is before this? Okay, well, uh, my name is uh, Tracy Wang and I am a mom of two and I live in the Eastern Townships, which is like uh, basically on the border of Vermont and uh, Quebec. I work for the federal government as a for Statistics Canada and, and get to talk to a lot of people across Canada, which I thoroughly enjoy. I uh, My 
children are, were, I, it, this is always so difficult, you know, I have uh, two kids, I have uh, Riley Farrell and I have Brett Reagan. Uh, my son was 17 years old when he was killed. My son was really handsome, he was really funny. He worked part-time at the IGA, which is the, you know, the, the community grocery store. I live in a population of maybe 5,000 okay. regular and probably 8,000 in the summer because I live in, in the Lake community. So uh, we have no uh, police uh, like services. We have, we're a runner. And my son worked at the the cash, at the fast cash, you know, the 12 articles or less. Uh, he made people laugh. He was really the star of that uh, of that store. Uh, and when he started working at the IGA and I would meet people in the street, like I'm a first responder, so a lot of people know me. And they would be like, oh, my God, your son, he's great. He's funny. He's going to go places. He's so social. Uh, he's not normal, like, because he talks and makes jokes to adults. He's not intimidated. So... It made me so proud, and so you know, I I was looking forward to his future. And uh, Riley did struggle with some um, some depression. Um, it started around the age of twelve. He had a bit of intimidate. Um, we call that intimidation in French. I might mix up my words a bit, but there's some bullying a bit at school. Um, but I do believe that when he entered high school, uh, the bullying or the intimidation came from a lot from the teachers. And hmm. I know it's not a popular opinion, um, but it's one that I'm going to to stand by. Uh, the school let me down. Uh, they let him down a lot. And they're cognizant of that fact. Hmm. Uh, so graduation. Uh, Riley didn't graduate high school, but uh, he did finish high school you know he was in secondary five so he was going to have to do a couple of classes that he was uh, signed up for to do in the fall uh he was uh, still working at the iga uh, full time and uh you know we were making plans he really liked fashion he he liked buying clothes and selling clothes online so mm -hmm. we were starting to set up a little like e-store type thing you know for him because he used to buy a lot of stuff and I would be like what are you doing you know I had no idea I didn't have the vision I have now and so uh, he liked xbox he had a lot of friends you know um, he was really a typical teenager uh, what's hard with depression in teenagers is it looks a lot like being an adolescent uh, mm -hmm. yeah and with with Riley with his depression like I know it it comes out in different ways for different people a lot of people will just appear like introverted how did his depression like manifest itself like what visible signs were there that he was suffering from something uh the visible signs uh were hard to see for the external world uh mm -hmm. I just saw that he was sad that he had sadness and that he didn't um, he didn't have a lot of self-confidence mm -hmm. Um, he, he was very sensitive and he was always sensitive. Like even as a child, like I remember in kindergarten, like I really wanted him to toughen up. And I remember the kindergarten teacher was saying, well, there's so many boys that aren't sensitive and, you know, yeah, but I'm like, when it's, if a boy, if somebody doesn't want to play with him, he has to be able to adapt and, and, and find a new friend. Whereas, you know, Riley would try really hard to, to make that person like him. So mm -hmm. You know, it, it was, um, for me, that's how I saw it. 
Like I know at school, uh, they never saw it um, quite in the same way. Uh, he was more, um, I don't want to say aggressive, but, you know, maybe mouthy uh, sometimes. Uh, he didn't pay attention. And he, it manifested himself as being a little loud, you know, and he, he was uh, introverted. I'm pretty introverted, but, you know, he was able to work at the fast cash and, and be very social and, and make lots of uh, lots of acquaintances and friendships, mm -hmm. you know. And, and was his depression, was it something that it was to the point that he was like getting treatment or help or was it or was it more something you thought he was just going to like grow out of? Um, when he was 12 years old, uh, I did send him to, you know, to a, uh, a psychologist and, or like 13, I think he was in psych two. So he had to have been 13, 14, cause I couldn't go with him hmm. here in Quebec. I'm not sure what it's like in Nova Scotia, but at 14 years old, you're allowed to make your own health decisions. Hmm. So if you don't want to go to the doctor, you don't go to the doctor. You, you, it's, it's very difficult. Um, especially in the mental health department, you know, and, and she used to give Riley a lot of homework that he just didn't, wouldn't do. So mm -hmm. it was, you know, so he just stopped going. Mm -hmm. In the last year I did send him, he, he was welcome to going to a psychologist, someone that um, is more of a neuropsychologist. And so he was going through treatment in the beginning of January, 2018 until March, 2018. And, um, and then it just kind of like slipped off, uh, whether it's because of me or because of him or, you know, I just don't know in my eyes, uh, Riley was doing great. Like mm -hmm. I saw such a change and it was probably the consultations with him, but I'm, uh, you know, I don't know if I didn't ask Riley enough, like, do you want to go or is, you know, should I set up an appointment? You know, the, like, I, I've, Riley's never attempted suicide. I've worried about him uh, more than I worry about my daughter, but it never in that way. Like, I never, never expected this to happen, ever. Um, but leading up to J July of, of 2018, his, like, depression, it was... A, a part of his life and it was a problem but it wasn't the kind of thing where you were panicking and you know and, and it was in dire straits especially the last five weeks because i mean you know we had gone through school like he'd gone through a lot of things at the graduation and you know he it, to me he was looking up we were you know that day he'd received some clothes from some vendor for free mm -hmm. like a pair of shorts with white stripes and we'd kept the packaging and we, you know, like, so the last few weeks he was really great. You know, like I said, we were looking forward towards the future. Uh, you know, things were going good at the job. Well, I mean, he would, had given his notice for the job, but that's because he was going to do adult ed. He works in a canteen at fairs, the fairs were coming up. So he's going to be able to make a lot of money. And mm -hmm. So no way in my mind that I expect this to happen and especially you know the way it happened you know mm -hmm. so i i was uh you know riley like if uh, if he was mad at me or, or mad at his dad he would always text us like you know random times i love you you know and i was like oh you know he's either you know something happened whether it was a girlfriend or a, a friend you know it was just kind of like a code word so 
you know, that leads me to, you know, that's how I found out that my son was struggling a lot harder than I expected. Um, the day of July 25th, 2018, I, or the 24th, which is a Tuesday, uh, Riley went to the water park. There's a water park here with his friends. I think something may have happened there now, you know, but like I went and picked him up at uh, like 5.30 and it was really hot. And it's really humid. It was really humid. And him and I both get headaches when it's the humidity's high. So he had a headache and he went in his room and was playing Xbox. I made some cheap grilled cheese. Uh, he came out. Nothing seemed off. I mean, he looked grumpy, but not like I, it wasn't like a depression. He wasn't crying. He wasn't mad. He wasn't, it was really nothing. Uh, I went to bed at nine o'clock. Uh, he was still playing. It wasn't anything abnormal this is what we do and um at 1 in the morning i received a text message from him that said i love you and i uh, i tried to call him I, I asked him where he was i said i'd call 911 which i don't know why i would say that but you know i figured that would I don't know. I figured I'd call 911. I don't know why I was so worried. So you were just like at home in bed and got this text and you had, yeah. I, I'm assuming you thought he was in his room sleeping or something. Yeah. Well, at first I thought he was in his room sleeping. So I sleep downstairs. I went upstairs and he wasn't in his room. So that's when I texted back, where are you? And we have a beach like here that's not far. So I figured that maybe he went there. So like I said, it was really hot. I don't have air conditioning. So I went downstairs to get changed get dressed and there was a note in front of my door uh, that he had written uh, to me uh, so I picked it up and I read it and so I kept trying to call him and it was going directly to voicemail and uh, so I decided to get in the car and just go so I kept texting him and I never called 911 I I was going to go to the beach and when I left to go to the beach I crossed the first responder which in this town, uh, the ambulances are very far. Mm -hmm. So we have uh, two people that are on 24-7 uh, at all times. They're like pre-ambulance. So they know how to do first aid. They know CPR. Uh, we can do everything. Yeah. So I, I passed her. And I knew who. She always worked her Tuesday nights. And where she was coming from, I knew it was her. So I, I don't, for what, some reason, I just turned around. And I followed her and I arrived on the scene of um, a lot of police cars. I could see there was someone on the ground because I could see my the first responder doing CPR. Oh. I couldn't see who was on the ground, but I knew she was doing CPR because it's a, it's a move that if you've seen it, you know it. And so I knew that's what was happening. And so I ran out of my car with my I, don't, I think I had my phone and I ran toward, there was police cars. They already had the tape up. This was like 1.50 in the morning, 1.56 mm. in the morning. So it's 15 minutes after Riley texted me. And a police officer, she was a woman, she stopped me. And I said, I think that's my son. I didn't, she didn't even ask me. Like, just like, well, why do you think that? And I said, well, because I got a note and he sent me this text. And that mm. means... You know, and I said, he's depressed or he's depressive. Like, you know, I, 
like that and you say you know he has issues not like in the moment but you know and that's what I said I said you've been doing so well the last few weeks I wasn't worried and I said I, I think it's him and she's and she she grabbed me by the arm and she said well you can't I, I don't know if it's him and, and you wouldn't want to see the person that way and so she started walking me towards my car during this time I'm thinking my son had thrown himself in front of a car mm -hmm. that's what I thought and so she's like, well, can I read the note? So we went in my car. I sat in the passenger driver's seat and she sat in the passenger seat. And I should have known at that time that something was wrong. And she just started asking me questions and I told her my life story. Mm -hmm. And I and I basically told her how long I've been worried about Riley, which was five years. I said it. I said, I've been worried about him for five years since he was 12. And that's what I kept. And like where I was sitting, there was like um, there's like a windmill. It's like a small decorative windmill, and I kept thinking like, how could he, how could he have jumped that far? Because I couldn't understand how he had died. Because all the cars, the lights that I saw, I assumed there was another car. Mm -hmm. Like I couldn't believe. Like I live in a small town, that there would be that many police cars. 10 minutes after an incident, the police station is 16 kilometers away. It's the middle of a night on Tuesday, Wednesday morning, you know, it's, I mean, they roll up the sidewalks here. It's, you know, nine o'clock. It's very quiet. So I assumed that's why I assumed all of those things and the police never interjected hmm. anything. Yeah. And let me just ask about this note that, you that he had left you and that you shared with the police did that indicate that he intended to do himself harm is like am i getting the gist yeah it said that he that he was going to do something that and i wouldn't have to worry about him anymore okay. basically that's what the note said was that we wouldn't have to worry about him anymore okay. so but i really assumed you know i've been on as a first responder i've been on many calls um where patients have called in um Loved ones have called in, notes have been found. Uh, the person trying to die by suicide is, is calling in and they're calling in for help. Mm -hmm. And so in my opinion, I was going to help my boy. You know, like the note meant nothing to me. I never expected him to, when I found him, to him not be alive ever. Because I knew he was dead. When she was doing CPR, there's no doubt in my mind he was dead. You don't do CPR on someone who's unconscious. At what point did they tell you, like, this is Riley and... Amazing enough, like, it never occurred to me to ask them what happened. And I don't know why. And when she said that I can't confirm or that it's him, and you wouldn't want to see him that way. I it always. I just kept thinking he got hit by a car. He threw himself in front of a car. And I had called my ex-husband in the meantime. And where the intervention happened was at an intersection. So they had blocked off the intersection. And my Riley's dad was coming from the opposite way. So he had to cross the, to the police tape. And the, when he was met, he knew one of the police officers and he said, it's going to be transparent. Don't worry. And like when he came to me, he's like, he thought for sure Riley had shot himself because 
because the cops I kept asking him about firearms like you know like and I guess they were asking me but I was like well, I don't know anything about firearms okay so I said they said well go to the hospital and they're, you're going to find out there because Riley left in the hospital so I we went to the hospital and Larry arrived earlier because the road was blocked I had to go do a big detour no one offered me a ride uh, Larry's girlfriend was with him, so she drove him. And Larry is Riley's dad, right? Uh, yeah, yeah okay. he's Riley's dad. And so when I arrived there, Riley's dad, Larry, and the cop and his girlfriend and a nurse were outside yelling because that's where the hospital is. So I arrived and I parked. And my my role in pretty much life is a, I'm the calm person, like. I come in, I can diffuse situations quite easily. I, I'm just able to do that. And like, especially with Larry, you know, I've known him for a long time. So, and he was talking English and the cop was talking French and I could hear you, she won't talk English to me. And, and so I went in and I was like, he's like, she wants me to go in the small room. I know what she's going to say to me. And I guess the small room is where they give you the bad news that your son's died because no one still has confirmed anything. So we eventually go uh, wait in the waiting room and it's so long that it's even unimaginable. So the doctor comes with a nurse and the police officer. It, this woman police officer and her name is uh, Officer Hassin. I know her now just because I made a complaint against her, but I know her name, Officer Hassin is there with the doctor and with the nurse. And every time we see the doctor or the nurse, this cop is there every time. Hmm. And so, and it, we still, I, we're not putting two and two together because while we were waiting, Larry's like, oh, he must've, you know, he goes, I, I stopped back home and I saw he left me a note. And so he's like, he must've taken the, you know, he must've taken my rifle and it must be this. And, you know, so I was like, okay, he shot himself, you know? And so the police officer or the doctor said, uh, I'm here to tell you that your son has died. And uh, Larry asked, can we see him? And the police officer said in French, no, because the police are there. And Larry left. She's like, we're going to come back in a few minutes and tell you what happened. And Larry left. He's like, I don't need to hear anymore. They won't talk English. You know, he's having a fit about that. So he left. And it's probably around 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning at this time. So over an hour and a half, and we're still thinking that Riley died by suicide. I, I had come to terms with it, actually. Nobody was telling me different because they knew that's what I was thinking. And they, they had the letter because I left it with them. I had no idea that I had to protect myself. No. So after a few minutes, I went to see the receptionist at the emergency room. I said, I'm waiting for the cops to tell me what happened. I said, I'm the mom of the little boy they just brought in, you know? And they're the cop, that woman, Officer Hassin, is like having a laugh with the doctors and turns around and sees me and, and makes like this surprise, like she had forgotten me there. So she grabs the nurse and we meet in that little room that's probably four by four. It's really small because I was almost knee to knee with her. She's looking at me straight and She's telling me that her job is she's the, the liaison for the hospital. So when awful incidents happen, they call her. She comes in. She meets with the parents and she has this discussion. 
And I said, okay, so I'm kind of feeling bad for her because, you know, as to give the bad news. And so I asked her what happened and she said, do you really want to know? I, I said, yeah, of course I want to know. And she said, well, she said, we received a call from 911 that someone that there was a, a, a man menacing in the street with a firearm yelling in crisis. And uh, when the police arrived, it was your son and he died during a police intervention. And that was that. And I was like, and I looked at her and I said, are you telling me that you shot my son? And like, when I say you, I meant like her colleagues. And she said, yeah. And I, and I just looked at her and she had Kevlar on her body armor on and she had boots to hear. And she had, it looked like Kevlar here, like on her feet. Like I, all I could see was her face and her, her knee, her legs, her knees were even covered. And I, and I went, I go, you, I looked at her and I went, you were afraid of him? And she said, yep. And that was it. And I just called Larry. I told him what happened. And then I hung off the phone real quick. And she gave me her, she said that uh, she had sympathy for us. And um, was there anything she could do for us? And, and I was in shock, you know, so I was, trying to piece everything that had happened. I don't even know. I can't even remember if she told me that he had a firearm. Mm -hmm. And so I went to, uh, I left. I, they, they asked me, the doctor came and asked me if I needed anything. I said, no, no, I'm okay. And I left. Wow. So at this point, I still didn't know where he had been shot. That, that took a long time. And it's, it's really tragic, the whole sequence. Mm -hmm. But it was total betrayal. From the minute I arrived on the scene to I arrived at the hospital till I left the hospital, really, it was complete betrayal. Sorry to interrupt the episode like this, but I want to take a moment and tell you about something I had just posted to the Nighttime Premium feed. But for those of you unfamiliar, let me first start by telling you that there is in fact a separate and much better feed than the one you're listening to Nighttime on now. It's available exclusively at patreon.com slash nighttime podcast. The premium feed costs about as much as a bag of chips, but it's arguably more satisfying than a salty crunch ever will be. First, the premium feed funds the creation of the show. So if you enjoy nighttime, you have the subscribers of the premium feed to thank for keeping it alive. Secondly, the premium feed is far less annoying. Since it's listener funded, there's no ads like this or the others you've heard. And lastly, the premium feed includes exclusive episodes that you won't find here on the free feed. Just prior to the release of this episode, I released an episode on the premium feed where my BFF Randy and I discuss a collection of stranger-than-fiction news stories that recently made headlines in Nova Scotia. So if you're into the weird stuff, this premium feed episode is going to be right up your alley. If you're interested, you can get to the premium feed at patreon.com slash nighttime podcast. I should also mention that all annual subscribers to the premium feed will receive a discounted rate and a nighttime podcast welcome swag pack. Again, you can go premium at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash nighttime podcast. Now let's get back to the episode.
there's been three years since this happened and there, there's still a lot you don't know but so much of this story has become your quest to figure out what happened to hold the police accountable talk to me through like a bit of what you've been able to learn about riley's activities leading up to this interaction with the police and maybe also tell me how you were able to learn this because because as i understand it they didn't just say like here's you know our receipts to show you what happened photo uh, no so within about a month the the independent uh, bureau of investigations i'm going to call it the bei mm -hmm. so the bei it's how it, the acronym in french arrived and told me it was going to be independent it was going to be transparent that there were rules and that there were regulations and that so I was told that I was going to get a meeting at the end of the investigation with the BEI. I was told that I was going to get a meeting with the prosecutor's office, the Crown. And uh, so I made sure those things happened because I knew in other interventions and with other families that the things didn't happen. I'm going to say I never hired an attorney, which I think is what really saved me because the minute an attorney gets involved, they don't want to talk anymore. And I had a really good relationship with the, the liaison officer from the BEI that they sent to me. I think he was as transparent as he could be with me. Mm -hmm. So I figured that I wasn't alone and that there was some valid validity to my questions and just, I never let them up. So I wrote a lot of letters of access of information so I just kept doing that. So when I had um, the opportunity to meet the BEI, I, I had questions for them. I told them I wanted to hear the 911 call. I told them that I wanted to hear the declaration because the police are mandated to give a declaration if you shot or had direct contact with the subject, which is Riley. They don't call them victims. And... Um, I got all those things that I asked for. Yeah. So now before you hear the 911 calls, there was, it was still a mystery as, as to what happened from the point Riley left and sent you the text to you arriving on the scene is my understanding. Well, I had heard some things like the first responder had told me he got shot in the head. Okay. Just one shot in the head. I knew or had a feeling that Riley was the one that had done the 911. No, I, I knew the BEI did tell me that Riley was the one that made the 911 call. Wow. So I was very anxious to hear it. I, so those were the only things that I knew. So tell me about, so the, I'm assuming when you hear the call, this, you have to go to the police station or somewhere and meet with people to play it. Can you tell me about that experience and, and describe what you hear in this call? Yeah, uh, the first time we heard it with the Crown prosecutor, so we met at the courthouse. I think they did that um, for legal reasons, but also there's like a, a bailiff there with a weapon in case we lose our minds. Like It's, like, it's quite insane, uh, the things that we've gone through. So, mm -hmm. so you know, they're like, it's going to be really hard for you to hear. You know, it's his voice. So it was, uh, it, it was actually, it felt good to hear his voice. It felt good to hear his voice to hear he was really calm but it, he was not afraid um it was good to hear him describe himself as chubby 
not quite six foot because it really bothered him that he wasn't six foot. Like he was like five eleven and a half, and and he says that in the message, you know, in the nine one one. He's he's just a regular guy. He's he's just screaming. He's in crisis. That's all he was saying. Like Riley didn't sound scared for that person, you know. He he was talking regularly. Uh, he described him to a T. Said he had a backpack and. Uh, so just one more question about the the 911 call just so people understand is Riley made a 911 call reporting as if he was a witness to someone in distress. Exactly. Yeah. But but he was describing himself. So he is he calling and saying like, "Yeah, I see this guy, you know, doing this on the street, but he's actually describing what he's doing." Am I understanding that right? Yeah, exactly. He just says he's walk he said so yes, Riley was describing himself. He said he's in front of the IGA, this guy. I think that's all he said, he's screaming and he's walking towards Cowansville, which is a little town. And um, the dispatcher spent a lot of time asking him questions. Like, uh, do you hear what he's saying? Does he appear drunk? Um, and it's uh, Riley's English speaking and she's English speaking as well, but they're talking in French to other people. Okay. So I think like she's not quite understanding him. And I don't know if you understand, like when you call 911 on a telephone, it goes to a central and then that central sends it to like your community. Okay. So there were two like transfers and so you can hear like the cops talking a little bit and like they're all, getting ready. They're all going to meet somewhere to talk. Mm -hmm. in, in the call with Riley, how does, how does that end? Yeah, it ends as, uh, so he's, she's like, okay, well, I got your name. She took his name. She took his number. And he said, well, she's like, okay, well, we might call you back. Okay. He's like, yeah, okay. Bye. It was like that. It was so nonchalant. But what happened when they met, one of the police officers called Riley back. And that is not recorded. Oh. And so he was calling back the person who called 911, right? So the person Riley was describing, they didn't know that they were talking to the subject, to the victim. They knew they were talking to Riley, but as the caller to 911. Mm -hmm. A witness rather right, than, rather than the, the person. Mm -hmm. And he said that Riley, that he asked Riley where he was, if he still had a visual on him, mm -hmm. and if he was safe. And Riley said that he was almost home. Mm -hmm. But I'm learning this uh, 19 months after Riley died. It's important mm -hmm. that 19 months. So it's like it all happened all over again because I learned so much newer information. Mm -hmm. That was basically the 911 call and that they called back. And in the 911 call, you hear them calling the cops to that meeting. And so you hear the guy who's in charge, the guy who called Riley. He's talking in French, but he, he said, he's there, he's there. And he says he has a weapon in his left hand. He's at Chins, which is the old restaurant, which is where he was. And... Uh, so when you hear him say he's there, 
to when he you hear him say shots fired it's 61 seconds wow and had not they not been talking on that radio i never would know that it was 61 seconds and i can look at you straight in the eyes all of you maybe that's not true maybe but i do believe that that would have happened you know i know in the declaration one of the cops says that it took less than a minute but uh so that changed everything for me it really changed everything for me they didn't negotiate with him they you can you don't negotiate in a minute yeah there's not much that can be said in a minute so the 911 call really gives you a picture of you know what led to the interaction and and through that allows you to figure out how long the interaction took but what information did you get about how the police actually handled their interaction with Riley like did you learn anything about what they said or did to try to uh, de-escalate him when I went to that meeting they said that Riley was holding the gun in his left hand the BB gun it's an air pistol in his left hand and his phone in his right hand I believe Riley may have been filming it but the BEI never thought it was pertinent to look what they kept saying was uh, drop your weapon and all will go well they said it in French, they said it in English, and they said it in English again. And apparently they heard Riley say, two cops say they heard Riley say, I've been planning this for five years. And that's what I told the cops. <laughs> I told them that before, I told them that at the hospital, like I know they use my words, but that's what they said that they heard Riley say. Uh, what do you mean you told, you told them that? Because I can, I know more what happened with Riley. You know what was going on in his mind. So he was playing on Xbox about ten thirty. He was playing cards. They were playing Uno, and then a friend of his, girlfriend, friend called, and they got in an argument. Riley went on on Instagram, put a dark picture up, started texting his friends that he was feeling good was thinking bad things and that he wrote to one of his friends, I'm going to do something that I've never thought of before. That's what's, that's what they told me that he typed out. Then he, they show Riley show sends a picture of him with a, the air gun on his leg. Like a, an air gun would be, I would call it like a BB gun. Like, like it BB would shoot. Gun, and it looks really like a revolver. It, it really does look like a pistol. So they were trying to, his friends were trying, knew something was up. They were trying to get him, but it bothers me that they say that Riley texts this. I'm going to do something I've been, never thought of before, ever. And that the cops say that they heard Riley clearly say, I've been planning this for five years. Two cops say that they heard that out of the six. Maybe he did say it, you know, but that's, so that's all that was said. That that's, there was never any ne other negotiation. So there was never, Hey buddy, what's up? Uh, what are you doing? Are you okay? Or what's going on? Um, they decided that they would arrive with the lights off and they decided that they wouldn't have their sirens on or their lights or anything so that they would arrive below the speed limit. All the police officers are surprised when they find Riley. Okay. Riley's in the middle of not in the street, but basically under a light, look at me, here I am 
And they all say they're surprised that he's there. Even though Riley said at two occasions, the kid's walking towards Cowansville. That's where they met up with him. They were driving into town slowly because they were looking for him. So when they found him, they were surprised. So I think they thought it was a crank call. Mm. I don't think they were prepared for what they were coming into. I don't know what they discussed um, at all because they won't tell me because that's a secret. Because what if I plan on doing something? I'm going to know how the police intervene. The guy who says shots fired in his declaration, well, I think three police officers say they're surprised to see Riley fall. They think Riley's shot the gun, but when they see Riley fall, they realize that he's been shot by a cop. Oh. So even at that time, no one else shoots a weapon. Hmm. And he meant to shoot him. Like that cop who shot Riley uh, shot him in the head to kill him. Mortal force necessary. That's in his declaration that he signed. When they said that to me, I couldn't believe it. I, he can't, don't they have to shoot in the chest? He shot him in the head to kill him. Mm -hmm. And Riley, like when you looked, like if Riley was standing 30 feet away from me or whatever, I, would I be able to tell he was a, like a young teenager or, or, or did he have like the physique of a man? I, just because in my mind, I feel like police would handle like a teenager in crisis different than an adult. Well, they knew he was a teenager because Riley had said it in the 911 call that he was just a kid. I think he, he was dressed in black. I mean, I'm sure, you know, he had a black uh, hat on or a beanie. I don't know what's in his book bag. I haven't opened it. Um, mm -hmm. But they say that he was, he had, that he was doing um, pacing mm -hmm. and that his arms were horizontal, horizontal and vertical. Mm -hmm. So he was doing this and he was doing, even at one point he did a 360. To do all of that in a minute is a lot. And to be able to shoot someone in the head to kill them, he could have shot him somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. And ultimately, the, sh the shot that was fired kills Riley. And you did file complaints, and there was some sort of internal investigation into whether the cop had done anything wrong. Can you talk a little bit about? what you know about this investigation and what yeah, the ruling so was? I did a police, uh, an ethics uh, complaint in December of 2018. So just a couple of months after I made complaints in regards to the police officer himself. I made complaints against the, the police officers not doing CPR because Riley's uh, organs were not viable for harvest. I myself have reanimated two people in my career as a first responder with a defibrillator. I've kept organs alive on one patient that went to seven people. Riley was well aware of that fact. He was an organ donor. Riley was a perfect candidate for organ donation and they did nothing. Um, and about how the police interacted that evening with each other in March of this year, I learned from the police ethics that they're still investigating whether they did anything wrong um, through the intervention. It's a, it's, it's a really slow process. I still don't have an autopsy. I don't have the toxicology report. 
COVID hit, so now they're using that as an excuse for not having the public coroner's inquiry before. And now in, in present day, like d despite this journey for information and this battle, the many battles you've had to go through in this, you're also known as, as an advocate to prevent things like this from happening in the future. I understand there was a petition that got a lot of coverage. Like thinking of Riley's story and your experiences, what are the changes that you've been seeking to see happen that would have either prevented Riley from dying or maybe prevent other people like him you know, from ending um, well, up the same I, way? I really wanted to make the public aware um, first and foremost that it could happen to anybody. So that's why, you know, like not having body cams and dash cams is just, I know we're technologically really behind as a country, but I think that we're spending millions and millions of dollars in complaints and lawsuits and, and it, it shouldn't take a George Floyd incident mm -hmm. to change things. So I wanted to do the petition because I knew that would again, get me in the media because I truly didn't believe that anything would happen from it because the square, the wheels of justice are very square. Um, but I knew it would, it would get talked about. I knew it would be a question on this, um, the table that they can't put aside, you know, as successful as it was, it, it, it could have been better. And, and I haven't stopped. And so I was always, always been trying to get Riley's story, other family's story in the media, because that it's not just Riley dying and that it's, I'm not just in mourning and I'm just pissed and mm -hmm. they don't have to shoot people. They just don't. It's a lot. Yeah, and in either way, what based on Riley's call, the nine one one call, even if they didn't put together that he was calling, kind of reporting himself, they they knew they were responding to someone in the midst of a mental health crisis. And there are countless stories that even I've come across that prove to me without a doubt that the police often seem to fall down when dealing with a mental health crisis. Um, and that's something your advocacy work has based on it has been based on as well as the idea of increased training or support in responding and to a mental health crisis not deviate like we do as you know I, i'm a first responder i've come upon seeing many a scenes where the person is drunk uh, someone who's diabetic and is having a you know has low blood sugar can be very violent someone who's who's on drugs or or very pissed off or angry or, or just sick can be very angry. You have to talk to the person, mm -hmm. a child that's having a fit. If you're yelling at the, he's just, and adults do that. When adults mm -hmm. argue, if you raise the tone, you're the next thing, you know, you're shouting at each other. Mm -hmm. Riley was clearly in distress when they arrived there. He was right there for them to see, you know, it wasn't an ambush. They knew all of these things. They spent seven minutes on the phone with the said caller. He didn't, the caller did not say he felt danger. He was really saying he was in crisis amongst themselves on the radio. The, like the 911 dispatch talking to them. It's, they're always saying crisis. You hear it often. It's a boy in crisis. He's all dressed in black. It's so they they knew what they were coming. They they spent seven minutes 
deciding what they were going to do, they said, well, she's going to try in French. And if that doesn't work, we're going to talk in English. You know, like I understand that they didn't know that Riley could shoot at any minute, but they were barricaded behind their cars. They had their cars for protection. They have their body armor and they're trained for those situations, you know, they're, or they're supposed to be. And, and they're not accountable because first of all, they have no body cams. There's no dash cam. They never leave any witnesses. The only witnesses are each other as in Riley's case. Yeah. And then, you know, and, and I don't want to put them all in the same category and say, but I don't believe it's a bad apple. I surely believe that the orchard itself has become rotten and that, and I think that's anybody who works anywhere in a corporate world understands that you are the little guy. And if you want to stick up, if you want to fit in and stick around, you have to go with the flow. You can't be a squeaky wheel going, Hey, you were really rude to that woman when you were giving her a ticket. And you were really rude to that homeless guy. Uh, and, and let's end with this. A lot of people have learned your story and Riley's story through the mainstream press and the reporting on, on this case. But you've also shared a lot of intimate and personal details in like a series of videos on YouTube, which I think is unusual for someone, for, for like a mother uh, to, to just sit in front of a web camera on YouTube telling a story. Like, tell me the process of deciding to share, you know, the intimate details of, of the story in these YouTube videos. Well, I just knew it was wrong. And a lot of people were asking me about it. So I was like, why not? You know, I, I wanted my story to get out. Um, I know a lot of my friends uh, wanted to ask me questions. A lot of the people in the community wanted to ask me questions. But the minute I start talking and I get a little water in my eye, everybody like shuts down. And it means I'm like, these are tears of joy that you're asking me to speak about my son. I did it a lot to defend him because I didn't like what I was hearing. And I didn't like that his depression was being used to justify shooting him in the head. Because I don't believe he deserved that. I don't think he was given a chance. I want to thank you for joining Tracy and I for a discussion surrounding the tragic events that ended her son's life. If you're interested in learning more about Riley, the police interaction that ended his life, or Tracy's quest for justice, I suggest watching the series of videos Tracy uploaded to her YouTube channel. I've added links to get you there in this episode's description. And with that, I'm going to end this episode of Nighttime, but before we part, I'm going to give thanks. First, a big thank you to Tracy for sharing her story with me and with the listeners of Nighttime. Next, a thanks to Monty Data for contributing the musical theme. It's a piece called Noir Tokyo. And lastly, a massive thanks to everyone who listens to Nighttime, as without your interest and your support, this show would be as pointless as it would be impossible. But having said that, keeping the show alive is and has always been an uphill battle. So if you want to help take a bit of weight off the show's back, please subscribe to the premium feed. For about the price of a cup of coffee, you can keep the show alive at patreon.com slash nighttimepodcast. And with that said, let me thank the newest supporters of the show. Kevin, Wendy, Monica, and Vanilla, thank you for your generous support. 
If anyone else would like to support the show but can't do it financially, you can give me a big hand by simply sharing the episodes across social media and letting like-minded friends know what we're doing here. If you want to give me some story ideas or have feedback for the show, you can find me at nighttimepodcast.com slash contact or on social media. I use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and I'm often live on the Nighttime YouTube channel. So until next time, take care of each other, hug your loved ones tight, and let me know if you see anything weird. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte. Because when I when I went to that meeting, they said that Riley was holding the gun in his left hand, the BB gun, and his phone in his right hand. I believe Riley may have been filming it, but the BEI never thought it was pertinent to look. The Crown never thought it was pertinent to look in his phone. It's locked up. I'm gonna wait. Somebody's gonna be able to. Hopefully, maybe. Hello. Yeah, <laughs> may leave a comment. <laughs> like I, I have to break in somehow. You know. So- uh, do you have the phone or do the police have the phone? I have the phone. It's still in the envelope, like the evidence envelope, because I think they may have tried to erase something. It might be in his cloud. It might be in his in the Apple ID. It's uh, a lot of things. It's very hard to get to Apple. And I have a hard time talking to people on the phone. I'd rather do things in person. I tried to go to the Apple store. They can't really help me there, you know? So. I'm being patient, you know, with the inquiry. I'm hoping the coroner might want to do it. Yeah. So, um, unless there's any, I'm going to end it here. Unless there's anything else you want to say or want to get into about about your story or Riley's. No. We could do a, a follow up, you know, with the inquiry. I'm going to try to get it as public as possible. When when is that? Is it scheduled yet, or is it still tentative? Because it, well, it hasn't been scheduled, but I've had a lot of conversations with the coroner. She told me December of 2020. Okay. You want to try to do it before Christmas?